Road to Cinema's final draft screenwriting software giveaway continues. If you follow these five steps, you'll be entered into a contest to win a free download of the final draft screenwriting software. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at JogRoad. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash JogRoad. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, JogRoad Productions. And finally, write us a review on iTunes on the Road to Cinema podcast page. Follow these five steps and you'll be entered into a contest to win a free download of the final draft screenwriting software brought to you by Road to Cinema and our friends at Final Draft. Welcome to episode number 36 of the Road to Cinema podcast featuring director Mara Stroach of the new documentary Sunshine Superman, which opens in theaters in New York and Los Angeles on May 22nd and theaters around the country in weeks to come. Sunshine Superman is a documentary that tells the story of Carl Banish, the founder of the base jumping movement, whose early passion for skydiving is featured in this film through incredible archive footage captured by Banish himself. This led Banish to transition from skydiving to base jumping, which is jumping from a fixed object such as a building, antenna, or cliff. We see in the film how Banish created one of the most extreme sports imaginable, as well as the escalating risk that Banish took in order to accomplish even more daring jumps. Director Mara Stroach takes us through her process for making Sunshine Superman, which includes assembling archive footage from Banish, capturing the essence of Banish's life, and filming new stunts for the film, which honor the legacy of Banish's dedication to base jumping. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at jogroad, like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash jogroad, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jogroad Productions, and you can follow us on Instagram, instagram.com slash jogroadproductions. And now we join director Mara Stroach as she discusses her original inspiration for making her new documentary, Sunshine Superman. Well, Carl Banish is, um, you know, the father of, of modern, modern base jumping. And the story when I first started making the film really hadn't been written. So I, um, I discovered the story through my uncle who was an aerial uh, cinematographer and an early base jumper. So I found a bunch of um, videotapes and kind of film segments that my uncle had left behind. He actually uh, passed away in an automobile accident um, after being a base jumper for, you know, uh, like almost five years. So he had left all this footage, and then I eventually... um, found the footage of Carl and Jean Danish, and I just really decided this was an amazing uh, story that really hadn't been told, and I really felt like it would be a, a fun and interesting uh, story to, to get to tell on the big screen. Yeah, and the, uh, the visuals from the archive footage is really incredible. Uh, digging through that footage, uh, did you have to develop a, a timeline at all for sort of... Um uh, you know, sort of developing uh, Carl's story? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely did. I, I created many outlines as well. Um, I, I had a lot of footage, and, you know, like I said, the story had never really been written. So um, we, my uh, producing partner, Eric Brueggemann, and I um, both are from editing backgrounds. So we spent a lot of time just going through footage, categorizing it, and then, you know, figuring out what the larger story was. I mean, we could have gone in many different directions with the story, um, and we really chose, uh, you know, kind of what we would focus on um, as it was the most interesting to us and we felt kind of the most cinematic story. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's really incredible the, the footage that Carl compiled of the of him you know of himself uh you know doing these base jumping stunts as well as uh friends of his um you know was was a lot of that what was that like on eight millimeter film or on 16 millimeter it was all 16 millimeter film so if you look at the cameras that they're actually strapping to their heads in the footage that is 16 millimeter which you know if you think about now that people have gopros and all this kind of stuff it's a pretty amazing amazing find yeah, those must have been bulky cameras uh, to put on them when they were doing the stunts. Yes, when they were doing the, the base jumps, yeah. um, they were putting on these enormous cameras. So yes, they were very bulky. Uh, yeah, I think Carl also he had a history of um, of filming uh, sort of uh, you know different acrobatic feats for uh, films. I believe in the film you talk about the uh, the John Frankenheimer uh, film he worked on. Yeah, I mean, he was shooting 35mm for the John Frankenheimer film, The Gypsy Moms, and, you know, he also coordinated a lot of other jumpers, so it was a pretty amazing, um, you know, uh, choreography to, to pull off these amazing, amazing jumps uh, on film. Yeah, uh, sort of in the development of, uh, you know, learning about sort of the the development of the history of base jumping, was there anything that really surprised you or, or took you off guard? <laughs> I think that, you know, Gene Banish is such a strong and interesting character. And, you know, not only, um, you know, was she Carl Banish's wife, but, you know, she was really integral in starting uh, the activity of base jumping. And, you know, um, she was really the first female base jumper. And, you know, it's a really remarkable story of a female athlete that really hadn't been told. So I was interested in learning how many uh, female base jumpers there were in the early days. And there was a lot of pioneering women that were base jumping. And I think part of that is that base jumping doesn't take a lot of um, physical strength. And it's, it, you know, it's this activity that is about precision and about um, uh, packing your equipment correctly. And to me, it was really surprising that there were so many women uh, in this activity, and I, I thought that was really cool, something yeah. I was very interested in. Yeah, and this was um, into the late 1960s, into the 1970s, and you know, eventually even into the 1980s, uh, that it was, you know, base jumping really became prevalent, is that right? Um, well, really, the activity of base jumping, which is an acronym that Carl came up with that stands for buildings, antenna, ban, and earth. Um, really came into play in 1981. So that's when the actual acronym was created, but there was jumps before that. And Carl, really, his active time in base jumping was from about 1978 to about 1984. 
Yeah, um, I'm curious too. The you know, there's, in the film, you show a lot of the risks that they took in terms of you know they were trespassing into going into you know large skyscrapers in Los Angeles and various locations. Uh, did that sort of surprise you at all? Sort of the risk they were willing to take in going to sort of off-track locations to uh, to you know to do base jumping. Um, I don't think that the risk. Uh, surprised me that much because I also grew up with my uncle and my dad and my uncle was a uh, base jumper and my dad was actually a pioneering rock climber so I wasn't very surprised um, but I, I definitely you know thought it was an interesting uh, activity to to do and I think you know that it, it kind of added to the tension of these jumps to have you know law enforcement officers and other uh, people, uh, you know, kind of pursuing the base jumpers as they're trying to safely uh, do these jumps. So to me, that was of interest, for sure. Yeah. Uh, for you, how important is the editing process for putting together a documentary like this? Because, you, you know, you talked about sort of somewhat of a writing, but is uh, the editing process, you know, really essential? Do you go through multiple cuts? Do you experiment a lot uh, when you're going through the process? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Eric Brueggemann and I, uh, my producing partner and co-editor on the film, we really um, spent a lot of time experimenting. And not just experimenting, but, you know, creating scenes that do not exist in the film today. Really, you know, going through all this footage really meticulously. Um, you know, I think for a film like this, the film is really written in the editing room. So I, I, you know, I felt like I really needed to edit the film and then, of course, have other editors look at it and, you know, um, have other people write notes to me because I was so close to film that it was important to have other points of view. But I felt like, you know, if I would have handed it over completely to another editor, um, I wouldn't have been able to completely tell the story that I wanted to tell because it, it you know, so much of this film was created in the edit. I mean, it's, you know, mostly archival if you really look at the film. And it's also, you know, about the interviews that, that I did. And I was even editing and then doing interviews that were reacting to the edit. So I think a lot of my work as a director was even done in the editing room. So some of your interviews you were sort of developing as you sort of saw different uh, scenes from the archival footage that you wanted to use and sort of reacting to that and into um, deciding who you wanted to interview. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like I said, you know, the film, uh, the, 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 there had never been a film on the topic and there'd also never been any written material. So we were learning a lot as we were interviewing and we were learning a lot as we were looking through the archival. So both of, both of those things kind of informed the other. And, you know, we worked together on those two aspects of the film kind of simultaneously throughout making it, I would say. Yeah. Uh, how important was um, was Carl's uh, widow in terms of uh, cooperation in making the film? Uh, did you feel that you were pretty unrestricted in terms of what you wanted to do when carving out the story? Um, yeah. I mean, Jean Banish, you know, Carl Banish's uh, widow, uh, she, she was absolutely instrumental in making the film. I mean, that said, you know, she didn't get to see the film until it was completed. So, you know, I, as a director, I really made a point of not sharing the film until it was absolutely done. So we um, we spent a lot of time talking. We spent a lot of time talking off camera. We spent a lot of time looking at footage. We spent a lot of time, 
you know, and more time talking and figuring out what the, what, what the experience was and what the story was. And, you know, then I went away and didn't show her anything for a long time. And then she saw the film, um, you know, as it was ready to premiere in Toronto, um, which was really scary, but she really liked it. And it was, you know, it was a good experience. So, um, yeah, she was instrumental, but very hands-off, which was really kind of the best thing you can have as a documentarian. Yeah, for you, uh, how important was uh, was using music in the film? Uh, did you feel that was a very essential element to conveying the mood of the story? Yeah, I mean, you know, I always had envisioned what, what kind of soundtrack I wanted. And, you know, everybody told me that I would never be able to get it. And I actually did. I got very close to exactly the soundtrack I wanted. I, I, I always felt like music was really important. I always felt like it was really important in terms of the kind of the sense of time and the sense of place. And, you know, this kind of California sunniness was kind of always really present in my mind. Um, and then in addition, we had an amazing composer, um, John Kova, whose music like kind of just blends with the with the film in a just really wonderful way um, uh, and just kind of creates an atmosphere that to me, uh, you know, I felt very satisfied with. So it was the first time I ever worked with a composer, you know, um, you know, it's really important to me. I think music just really can change a film and kind of make and break a film as well. Um, so it was very important to me in, in the process. Yeah. Uh, choosing the title, uh, Sunshine Superman, was that based off uh, the song, Sunshine Superman? It wasn't initially based off of the song, but then um, somebody drew to my attention that that was the title of the Donovan song. And... Uh, I then listened to the Donovan song, and I love the Donovan song, and I thought, wow, that's really an interesting uh, coincidence. And I hadn't remembered that that was the title of the Donovan song. So, um, you know, we actually licensed Donovan's song as well. And, uh, you know, I think that just that kind of spirit of innovation and, you know, kind of living living in this really uh, innovative, spiritual kind of uh Sensibility is something that really kind of resonated with the film um, and also Donovan's song. So I, I think the song is very perfect for the film, and I, um, I really, you know, I really feel like it, it really is a great summation also of Carl's character to have him be the Sunshine Superman. I think makes a lot of sense in my mind. Yeah, doing these, uh, you know, base jumping, flying through the sky, it, it you know, it fits very well uh, into that. Uh, I was curious, um, Alex Gibney is credited uh, as an executive producer on the film. Uh, what was his role uh, in the process, uh, you know, at various points? Well, Alex came on, you know, when we were just beginning to raise money for the project. And, you know, we, Eric and I had never made uh, a feature before. And Eric was working uh, for Alex, you know, as an editor. So we just, you know, we asked Alex if he could be involved and, you know, just kind of give us give us some kind of, um, you know, uh, guidance as we were raising money and, you know, working on this project. So, you know, he's really just been, um, at times, the voice of reason. <laughs> at times, just, you know, somebody that we could kind of, um, uh, you know, show cuts to. So we showed him early cuts of the film, um, and he gave us a lot of notes. And, uh, you know, he's just, 
he's been a great kind of stable, uh, you know, fatherly force in making this film. And, um, you know, we also had Josh and Dan Braun, who are sales agents, but also executive produced the film pretty hands-on. And, you know, we're pretty amazing in terms of helping raising money and just helping us, you know, kind of understanding, you know, how our pitch materials were working when we were raising money and just all that stuff that you have to do when you're making a documentary um, that if you haven't done before, you really don't know how to do. So it was really great to have these kind of veteran uh, film executives, you know, on board. Uh, for you, what do you think was sort of the most uh, difficult part about not only making uh, your first feature, but also making, uh, you know, a, a you know feature documentary? Uh, are there a lot of hurdles that come up through the process, especially at the very beginning? Um, you know, I don't know that making a documentary as your first feature is harder or easier. Um, this is a really large-scale documentary, so in a way I feel like it has some similarities to making fiction in the sense that we were doing all these reenactments and, you know, we were shooting on location in Norway and, you know, it's a really complicated uh, production element to the film. I think the biggest hurdles, of course, were raising money and getting people to believe that I could direct the film. I think in a way I was really lucky it was a documentary and that people um, sometimes will trust particularly, and I hate to say this, female filmmakers to, to make slightly smaller budget things so it was you know it was a good project to possibly have as my first uh larger scale you know first film but you know there's so many hurdles i mean you know because the story had never been written you know i had to kind of write it and i had to kind of raise this budget and you know make sure that we could shoot in norway and you know just physically figure out how this thing works so um, you know, there's a lot of hurdles, but, you know, it's done now, <laughs> so that's good. Uh, yeah, I'm curious about uh, your background as a filmmaker, uh, sort of what was your, you know, experience uh, before making this film? Well, I had, um, I went to Rhode Island School of Design for visual art, and I did mostly sculpture and glass art when I was at RISD, but I also... I uh, took a number of film classes, so I worked uh, doing a lot of 16mm film when I was at RISD. And when I graduated from RISD, I continued to do kind of short experimental films. So I made a lot of um, films that were showing in galleries as well as, uh, as film festivals. And then I started to, um, I was living in New York City and I needed to have a job. And I worked mostly as a commercial editor in New York. And eventually I found this project, and I, I thought it was going to be a short film or maybe an installation or something kind of small. And then it just kind of grew <laughs> and ended up being, you know, a film that, you know, is pretty much, you know, launching my career into being more of a feature director. So it's been an interesting journey um, from, from there to here. Yeah. What, uh, what projects are you working on at the moment? I'm, um, you know, I'm officially signed on to produce a project that's about the history of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I'm also working, you know, to develop a couple of fiction projects, which are not completely, um, you know, they're not completely for sure, so I'm not going to mention them, but um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm hunting around for my absolute next project as a director. Um, but I'm looking at fiction and and documentaries, and I feel like you can really, uh, as a director, kind of like Werner Herzog, you know, you can go back and forth between uh, um, 
fiction and, and doc, and I, I, I see that that's quite possible, and I, I would like to do that. Yeah, no, it's very common. Uh, I know uh, Louis Maul, who's uh, one of the great French directors, he did that quite a bit, too. I am a fan, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah, I like directors that do that. I like directors that go back and forth. I think there's no reason why somebody shouldn't, you know. Yeah, uh, so I was wondering uh, about the distribution of the film. So it's going to be airing on CNN? Actually, uh, but first we're going to be um, coming out, you know, through Magnolia Pictures. We're going to be in theaters on May 22nd in New York and L.A., and then we're rolling out to the rest of the country. So we'll have a pretty big theatrical showing uh, in the States and in Europe and in Australia. So we'll, we'll be having a very significant theatrical run. Um, and then we'll be on CNN next year. Oh, that's great. Uh, is there a website uh, people could go to? Um, you know, people can go to Magnolia, Magnolia Pictures' website, uh, which I think is just www.magnoliapictures.com, and, you know, look for Sunshine Superman, and we're on there as, you know, a coming release. And, um, you know, uh, we're really, really excited to finally bring the film to theaters. It's uh, it's very exciting and, and frightening yeah. <laughs> at the same time. Well, uh, yeah. and, oh, and then uh, lastly, I was just wondering if there's a moment in the film that you feel that you're the most proud of or sort of um, exceeded your expectations when you finally saw it complete. You know, that's such an interesting question, and I, it has been asked of me a few times, and you know, I really see the film as a whole, um, and I'm very proud of the fact that it's feel like it holds together really well, but I have to say, like, actually shooting the end sequence, which, uh, um, you know, <laughs> has all this uh, wingsuit flight, and then also shooting kind of the end reenactment in Norway on the mountain, um, I feel very, very proud of. We worked with aerial cinematographer Peter Dagerfeld, who did The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, as an aerial cinematographer, and also our cinematographer, uh, Nico Paulson. And, um, you know, I basically made sketches for them and showed them kind of German romantic paintings uh, that I wanted it to look like. And they did it, you know. It was like they did exactly what I wanted. So as a director, I felt really proud that kind of the end reenactments in Norway turned out um, as I wanted them to. And that was um, surprising because I think it's so rare um, uh, as an artist or a filmmaker, you know, that that thing that you want it to be exactly how it is, it actually is. So we're really excited and really proud of those of those sequences, which are just really physically difficult to produce, but we feel like it actually came off really well. So. Yeah, and especially uh, in the last scene of the film, uh, that visual of you know flying in the air uh, and the way that was captured is you know, really beautiful. Thank you. Yes, that was challenging. <laughs> and, you know, we're really happy that it came out like it was supposed to. Um, and you know, it was uh, it was it took you know one full day in Norway to get that shot. And you know, if anyone knows about uh, Undel's Nest, Norway, it rains you know most of the time. So we got this one clear day, and it was uh, really lucky that we got that whole, that whole sequence shot in one day. But it was it was quite an endeavor. 